W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Locations in Newport Ritchie, Crystal River, and Tampa. Up next is Verse by Verse. Sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. You have to understand Genesis 3. But Genesis 3, and this is where it becomes very, very helpful to us, is not simply an accurate historical account of something that happened in the past and we read about and say, oh, isn't that interesting? Now I understand, now I have a theological foundation. I mean, it is that, but it's more than that because it also has valuable lessons for us today. And one of those lessons is about how Satan tempts us because he's still doing it the same way. We want to learn this morning, and you have notes. You can follow your notes and fill it in on how Satan tempts us and what we should do about it. You see, the very same way that that Satan tempted Eve is what he's doing today. Genesis. What an aptly named book. Its name is its description. Want to know how the universe began? It's in Genesis. Want to know how humanity began? It's in Genesis. Want to know how sin began? Well, that's in Genesis too, and the Genesis of sin is our topic today on Verse by Verse. Welcome. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today he's beginning a new series of lessons from Genesis chapter 3, and it deals with the fall of man, which began, as you probably know, with the temptation of Eve. Have you ever had a conversation with someone that radically changed your life? I've had a few. And thankfully, the changes were generally either good or at least neutral. How about a conversation that totally ruins your life? That'd be really bad, wouldn't it? But what if it ruined not only your own life, but the lives of everyone who would ever live? That's the kind of conversation Eve had when she allowed herself to get into a debate with, of all things, a serpent. If you have your Bible with you, turn to Genesis chapter 3. Here's Pastor Steve. Several years ago, comedian Flip Wilson popularized the saying, the devil made me do it. Recall Flip Wilson and how he would raise his voice and say, the devil made me do it. But according to the Bible, according to the Bible, the devil really can't make us do anything. God holds us accountable for our own sin and not the devil. We make the decision to sin. But the devil certainly does have a place in the process that leads to our sin, and that place is called temptation. He is the tempter. In fact, the Bible says two times in the New Testament that uh, Satan not only tempts us, but he is called the tempter. He's been doing this for a long time. He is an expert at temptation. He has a lot of experience. When did it start, and how long has he been doing this? Well, ever since the Garden of Eden when he tempted Eve, to disobey God. And I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. You know where we're going. We've been in Genesis for some time. Now it gets very interesting as we begin to look at this marvelous chapter, which is a critical chapter in understanding the rest of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3 begins this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, As God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. You can translate that from every tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. 
For God knows that in the day that you eat from, uh, from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband uh, with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now this is the story, obviously the story of the fall of man. It's the first sin which ultimately infected all of us and has given us all a sin nature. And this is the entrance of death into the universe in terms of of mankind. Now, really, without an understanding of Genesis chapter 3, it is a critical chapter in the Bible, perhaps the most critical chapter in the Old Testament. But without an understanding of this chapter, I'm afraid the rest of the Bible would make no sense or very little sense to us If you didn't understand Genesis 3, you wouldn't understand the true nature of sin. You wouldn't understand what sin is. You wouldn't understand where death came from. You wouldn't understand why you act like you do. You wouldn't understand, therefore, your need for salvation in Jesus Christ. This is foundational. You could not, without Genesis 3, interpret life properly. You could not have an accurate uh, world perspective you have to understand Genesis 3. But Genesis 3, and this is where it becomes very, very helpful to us, is not simply an accurate historical account of something that happened in the past and we read about and say, oh, isn't that interesting? Now I understand, now I have a theological foundation. I mean, it is that, but it's more than that because it also has valuable lessons for us today. And one of those lessons is about how Satan tempts us because he's still doing it the same way. We want to learn this morning, and you have notes. You can follow your notes and fill it in on how Satan tempts us and what we should do about it. You see, the very same way that that Satan tempted Eve is what he's doing today. He really has not changed. His tactics remain the same. His strategies are not new. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, For we are not ignorant of his schemes. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 speaks of of Satan's strategy. He does have a strategy. He does have methods. He does have a tactic. He does have a scheme to push and solicit us into sin. Now, it's interesting because Paul says we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. Well, where do you learn? Where do you learn about Satan's schemes? Is there some book on the market that you just rush to your Christian bookstore and you can find the book that will tell you about Satan's schemes? Well, what Paul means is that we understand, we know his schemes because we've read God's book. It's revealed in the word of God, the schemes of Satan. There's no special book out there except the word of God. And let me illustrate this to you and and why this is so important. During World War II, General George Patton did what no other general was able to do. He successfully defeated the brilliant German general, Rommel, in northern Africa. Now, supposedly, General Patton shouted in, in the thick of the battle, he, he shouted out loud, I read your book, Rommel, I read your book. You see, years prior to this, Rommel uh, wrote a book called Infantry Attacks. Maybe not the brightest thing to do if you're going to attack, but anyway, he wrote a book called Infantry Attacks. And in it, believe it or not, he explained his military strategy. So General Patton read it, understood what was going to happen, 
And uh, that's how he understood and knew his enemy's tactics, and he met his enemy that way. Well, in the same way, we have read the book. We need to understand God's word in order to discover how to defeat the enemy. I want you to look also, keep your place at Genesis chapter 3, and then look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to just be convinced beyond any question that Satan's tactics are the same. They really have not changed. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verses 2 and 3, we read this. For I am jealous for you, Paul writes, with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that is to Christ, that I might present you a pure virgin. Paul said, I have led you to Christ. You are married to the Savior. I want to present you in purity. I don't want you going off track. And then he makes this comment in verse 3, but I'm afraid. Paul had a concern. Paul had a fear. I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Do you see what I mean? What Satan did way back in the garden, Paul says, I'm concerned because he's doing the same thing and he may be doing it to you. He is just as crafty. He is just as shrewd. And people are people. You can quote me on that, by the way. People are people. I know that's deep. But Satan is uh, doing the same thing. And we can learn today, and we're going to learn today, we're going to discover the way that he deceived Eve in his craftiness. And the reason we want to discover that is in order that we might understand uh, what we should do as Satan does his same kind of strategy upon us. As I've studied this passage of Scripture, uh, it seems to me that there are three steps that led to Eve's sin. And those are the three steps, the same three steps that he uses today with us, in terms of temptation. Now, not every temptation, uh, temptation is not sin. It does not have to result in sin. It often does. It doesn't need to. But these are the same ways that he tempts us, a threefold uh, kind of step uh, to it. It's a, it's a process. It's really a pattern. Now, this week, we're going to look at two of those steps, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the third one. Step number one in the process of Satan's temptation is this, deception. Deception. We begin in verse 1 where Moses writes, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now let's stop here for a moment. When chapter 2 ended, we noted that everything was really wonderful in paradise. Everything was just wonderful. Adam and Eve were sinless companions, no sin. Perfect fellowship with not only themselves but with God. Adam had a great job. He was to rule over the animals and take care of the garden. They were content. They were satisfied. Everything was, was great. But with the first line of chapter 3, we're introduced to something that's going to change uh, everything. It's going to change the rest of the, the course of, of uh, human history. One of the animals that God had created, a snake, a serpent, initiates a conversation with Eve because it says in verse 1, and he said to the woman. Now, what do we, what do we know about this snake? Because uh, I don't know about you, but I have not talked to any snakes. This is rather unusual. Um, this is a strange phenomena does not happen very often. Perhaps this was the only time. Well, first of all, we know that this was a real snake. This is not a symbol of evil. This was a literal real snake because Moses describes the snake as a beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So it was a snake, a literal snake. This is not symbolic language. There is nothing in the presentation of Genesis 3 that would lead us to think it is anything other than literal historical 
uh, truth. That's also the way the New Testament treats it. If you make a, a myth out of this, you must make a myth out of Jesus Christ. Because in Romans chapter 5, Paul's whole argument is that death came by one man, Adam, and therefore life reigns by one man, Jesus Christ. So you, you um, cannot have it that it's a myth and then Christ is historical. It's presented in historical, accurate language and presentation. It's a real, real animal, a real snake. And he's also described as more crafty than any of the other animals. In other words, above all the animals that God had created, snakes were created wiser, shrewder, and cleverer than all the other animals. In fact, Jesus acknowledged this in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be shrewd as, as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus recognized that there is a, a shrewdness to snakes. It's been built into them by God. What's more, this snake must have looked very different than snakes look today. Now, oftentimes you see a picture of this and you see some slimy uh, creature that we know today slithering around the tree. That's not the way snakes looked. That's part of the curse. That's part of the curse. Because if you jump down to chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life, indicates that that was not the way that snakes looked. That's not the way they originally looked. Uh, how did they look? We're not told, but they certainly didn't look the way they look today. It's very probable that snakes were upright animals. It's very probable that they were beautiful, gorgeous creatures. Uh, in fact, there are some scholars who believe that the Hebrew word for serpent originally meant shining, upright creature. Now, we don't know. Maybe, and I'm only speculating at this point, uh, maybe they had wings initially. Maybe they had legs. But they certainly didn't look the way snakes looked today. Now, what about his speech? Snakes don't talk. Snakes don't talk. Now, we, 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 have, to, uh, we have to think about this. You and I do not talk to snakes. At least I hope that you don't. But Eve did. Why? Because this was, while it was, and watch this, while it was a literal snake behind this snake and the conversation we're about to study was Satan. Satan. The devil. The devil. That is to say that Satan indwelt this literal snake. In other words, this was a devil-possessed snake Satan had entered into it. I didn't say demon-possessed. We often say demon-possessed. Not demon-possessed, devil-possessed. It was not one of the fallen angels other than the king of fallen angels himself, Satan. This usually doesn't happen when there is a possession. It was true of, um, of Judas. It says that the devil entered into him. It will be true of the Antichrist in the tribulation times. And it was true of this serpent. The serpent becomes an instrument of Satan. How it exactly happened, we're not told. Now, this is not speculation. This is not creology. That's my own theology. This is, uh, this is the Bible. Because in the New Testament... Uh, Satan is identified with the serpent. He's called in Revelation 12, verse 9, and Revelation 20, verse 2, he's called that serpent of old, the devil. The serpent of old, meaning that this is exactly where he was. He was in the garden. In fact, also in the curse, it says in verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And uh, it's speaking of Satan there. Speaking of, of Satan, it's not talking of snakes there, it's talking of, of Satan. Now, this brings us 
uh, up to, to two important questions that we, that we need to ask. Number one, who is Satan? Who is Satan? And number two, why is Satan in the Garden of Eden about to tempt Eve? What does he care about this? What are his interests in this? Answer number one to who is Satan. The Bible teaches that Satan was originally a very beautiful angel named Lucifer. In fact, I, there are two passages of Scripture that, that tell us about this. And uh, the first one is in Ezekiel chapter 28. If you can find Ezekiel and Rex, this would be a good point, a good time for you. Is Rex not here? Okay. This would have been a good time for Rex to recite to us Ezekiel. But Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, it does speak about a king. It does speak about the, uh, the king of Tyre, but it goes beyond that. The language would tell us that it is more than a human king. And, and we know from other scriptures that, uh, that demons and Satan are behind often the, the uh, nations of the world, even though they're not aware of that. Daniel teaches that. This makes perfect sense that in Ezekiel 28, he is referring to Lucifer or Satan. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub. See, that's a, an order of angel who covers and I placed you there, and you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. We don't know. It's still a great mystery as to why Satan sinned or how with a sinless creature that God created there could be unrighteousness. Um, we don't know this. But we do know that unrighteousness was found in him. This is the origin of evil by the abundance of your trade and, and, and so forth. But jump down to verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. So we, we learn from this that originally he was beautiful, but in his beauty, he was corrupted. And you'll see why in a moment. Isaiah is the other passage of scripture, Isaiah 14. And once again, Isaiah begins by talking about a human leader, but it goes beyond that, and the language would indicate this. Verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. That is another word for Lucifer. Lucifer means the day star or star of the morning or shining one. He must have originally reflected God's glory and uh, shined forth. Star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you have weakened, you who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, and this is why Lucifer fell, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mountain of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. It was not enough for Lucifer to be beautiful, to be even over the other angels, he wanted to be like God. And when it says here that, um, that uh, to exalt himself above the stars, stars is often used in Scripture, especially the Old Testament, to refer to angels. It's used that way in Job 38, verse 7. He wanted to be above them all, so much so that he was equal with God. Satan's sin was pride and arrogance. In fact, that's repeated in, in 1 Timothy 3.6. When you're looking at uh, prospective elders, Paul says, 1 Timothy 3.6, he's not to be a, a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The devil's condemnation goes back to pride and arrogance and conceit, wanting to be like God 
wanting to be greater than he is. And Paul says, don't you choose an elder as a new believer because he'll think he's better than others. And that's precisely what Satan thought. He was better than others. He was so great, he was going to be as great as God. So Satan is a fallen angel. That's who he is. No longer is he called Lucifer. It's not his name anymore. He's not the shining one who reflects God's light. Now he's known by such negative and wicked names as Satan, which means adversary. He is our adversary. He is the enemy. Devil means accuser. It means the slanderer. He does accuse us before God. He accuses us to one another. Where do you think you get negative thoughts about people? Not only does it come from, from ourselves, but he tempts us in that area. He's also called the serpent, the dragon, the evil one. So that answers the question, who is he, very basically. You can read all kinds of books on this and go deeper with this. But I would caution you to not make too much of Satan. The Bible makes just enough of Satan. There are two extremes we can go to. There are some who think that Satan's in everything, and there's a demon behind every bush. And some think that if you sneeze, you've got the uh, the sneeze of demons or things like that, it, that they see demons everywhere. The other extreme is to ignore Satan, to make like he doesn't exist. And that's not true. We need to have a balanced biblical perspective. So don't make too much of him, but be aware of him. The second question is, what's he doing in the Garden of Eden? Why is he there? And I think the answer to this is that he's the enemy of God. He hates God, and he opposes everything that God approves of. God, This is God's creation. God has created man in his image and likeness. Man is the closest thing in terms of likeness to God, and Satan hates Adam and Eve, and he hates us. So he opposes Adam and Eve, There, and, and, uh, and now he uh, tries to defeat God through mankind. You see, the battle is really between Satan and God. We're just kind of in the middle of it because we represent the Lord, and he really can't get to God. And so he tries to come at us, and that's what he's there uh, doing in the garden. He hates God, and he is opposed to everything God is doing. So here's the scenario. Satan, using the form of a beautiful, clever animal, begins to talk to Eve with the intent of deceiving her. And here's the timeless principle that applies to us. Satan always comes to us in a deceptive way. He is never up front. He never introduces himself and says, Hi, I'm the devil, I'm evil, and I'm out to get you. Never like that. He is always deceptive. He's not going to appear to you today in the form of a snake, but he does tempt us by men and women who look good on the outside. And they sound impressive, but they are messengers of Satan. J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, while not an allegory, it does have some well-expressed truths in it. One is the scene when Frodo first met Strider, the tall, thin man whose real name was Aragorn and who was to become the King of Gondor. He was quite a hero, but he gave Frodo and the other hobbits quite a fright. But Frodo, thankfully and finally saw that he really was a friend. He told Aragorn, You have frightened me several times tonight, but never in a way that servants of the enemy would, or so I imagine. I think one of his spies would, well, seem fairer and feel fouler, if you understand. I see, laughed Strider. I look foul and feel fair, is that it? And so it is with Satan and his servants. They will look very fair on the outside. Their words will seem very reasonable, and we can be easily deceived until we shine the light of God's Word on them and realize how foul they really are. Pastor Steve Kreloff will continue these thoughts when we meet again for another verse-by-verse. 
Thanks for tuning in. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. If you want to visit Lakeside, I know you'll get a warm welcome and solid Bible teaching. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. Find out more at lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. That's 727-441-1714 or online at lakesidechapel.com. If you'd like to help support this ministry, you can do so by phone at the number I just gave or use our convenient and secure giving page. Go online to versebyverseradio.org and click the giving link. We're thankful for the generous listeners who make this ministry possible. There's also a message archive page where you can listen again to today's broadcast or any of the hundreds of others you'll find there. That's all at versebyverseradio.org. I'm Jerry Peterson. Ever since the fall, God's truths have been under attack. It was true in the garden. It was true in Isaiah's time in the early church and today. Like the Bereans in Acts 17, we need to always evaluate what we hear and read to see if it matches what God